It's Friday, February 21st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Roger Stone, sentenced to 40 months in prison for crimes that include obstruction of justice, lying to Congress, and witness tampering. But the big question is whether he will serve all that time. Looming over the whole case is whether the president will get involved. He has said that Stone has a very good chance of exoneration. Ursula Pirano, reporter at Axios, joins us for the sentencing details. Next, there's been a recent string of beehive heists in California's Central Valley. There's a booming demand for honeybees used for pollination rather than their honey, and beekeepers are making the trips to make money. But also on the lookout are thieves looking to steal them and make a profit. Oliver Millman, reporter at The Guardian, joins us for more on these hive heists. Finally, the Nevada Democratic debate gave us a ton of fireworks. First time on the stage, Michael Bloomberg took the majority of the heat from the candidates. Turning in what many saw as a poor performance, he had to field criticism over stop and frisk, his taxes, sexist comments he has made, and even non-disclosure agreements he had with some women. Zach Montalaro, campaign reporter at Politico, joins us for a full breakdown. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And I'm here to make a fair system. Again, Rogers is, is not somebody who worked in my campaign. I know Roger, but a lot of people know Roger. Everybody sort of knows Roger. And what happened to him is unbelievable. They say he lied, but other people lied too. Joining us now is Ursula Pirano, reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Ursula. Thanks for having me. We finally got a sentence for the longtime Trump associate, Roger Stone. He was sentenced on Thursday to 40 months, three years and four months in prison for crimes that included obstruction of justice, lying to Congress and witness tampering. We got to hear from the president. There's a lot of stuff that happened. So, Ursula, tell us what happened in the courtroom when he got sentenced. So he was sentenced, as you said, 40 months, which is significantly shorter than the seven to nine years originally suggested by prosecutors who had tried Stone's case. But as we know, DOJ stepped in, said they thought that sentence was too harsh. And moreover, the president has not been shy about chiming in, saying he thought the original sentencing recommendation of seven to nine years was horrifying or horrible and not necessarily weighing out a pardon for Stone. He hasn't attached himself to it completely. And he's sort of weighing the idea, you know, it's an election year. That would be a big commitment from the president to pardon his associate, Roger Stone. But it's a big looming question in this situation if that pardon is coming. What happened with Judge Amy Berman Jackson? There was some interesting moments. The new lead prosecutor there, you know, had to talk about the new sentencing guidelines. And it was this weird mishmash of well, you know, still arguing a lot of the same principles that were in the original sentencing guidelines. He didn't give a time that they recommend. The judge says the truth still matters and had some harsh words there. What happened with the judge? So Judge Amy Berman Jackson, she was sort of countering this narrative from people backing Stone that Stone was being prosecuted for fighting for the president. The judge countered that he was not prosecuted for sticking up for Trump. He was prosecuted for covering up for the president. That was her argument. And so she's kind of not playing into the politics of it all. She's trying to stick to what was brought forth in the Mueller investigation, the actions that Stone took when trying to pursue information about the Hillary Clinton WikiLeaks emails in 2016. 
she's not having it. She cut to the chase and said, this is not about Trump. This is about the actions that Stone took on behalf of Trump. Attorney General Bill Barr did an interview with ABC News, said that when the president tweets about the Department of Justice and what they're doing, it makes it impossible for him to do his job. There's been all sorts of stuff going on with Bill Barr, but it raises a lot of questions about what's going on there in the Department of Justice in the background. Really what that was, was DOJ has maintained through all of this that their decision to intervene in the Stone sentencing was independent of influence from the White House. But when Trump is tweeting along, it makes it really hard to sell that. So Barr told ABC News in that interview that he wasn't going to be bullied, that this was his decision, and that these tweets from the president chiming in make it difficult for him to do his job. And there was reporting in the days that followed that Barr was considering resigning over the situation because he simply felt he couldn't run DOJ in a way that fit what he was looking for. The president, for his part, did respond to this already. He was at an event in Nevada And he said he wasn't going to do anything just yet, but he says that Roger Stone has a very good chance of exoneration. That was essentially his quote, that he wanted to let it play out, but that there's this chance that he believes Roger Stone could be exonerated. So it'll be interesting seeing what happens in the next few days. But it does come at an interesting time, given the context of Trump pardoning multiple people earlier this week, former Illinois governor, former NYPD commissioner, uh, former NFL owner. He's been very bold this week, showing he's not afraid to offer clemency and that if he doesn't give Stone clemency, it's not because he's afraid to. Roger Stone, I guess, has another appeal or wants to get this tried again. So that process has to work itself out before he actually has to report to prison. So on the president's part, it's smart to finish letting it play out, let him go to jail for a few days or something before He takes any action, maybe even after the election, possibly, whether he wins or loses. So on that part, there's time left for the president to take action. This is not imminent. This is not going to be a deciding factor for voters in November. Did Trump pardon Roger Stone or not? This is something he can wait out. You know, we have reporting that Trump's advisors want him to wait until after the election to not make this a forefront issue just right now. Ursula Pirano, reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, have a good one. I mean, that it's becoming harder and harder for almond growers to find bees to pollinate their crop. So that's led to an increase in the cost of a hive. It used to be about $35 a beehive a few years ago. It's now up to around $200 a hive. Joining us now is Oliver Millman. Reporter at The Guardian. Thanks for joining us, Oliver. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. We're going to be talking about bees right now. California's Central Valley is a big, fertile stretch of agricultural land. It's responsible for about a quarter of all the produce grown in the United States. And right now, that area is also a big center of beehive thefts. There's an increasingly growing demand for bee pollination, not necessarily bees for honey, but to pollinate the area, to help this agricultural land. And people are getting their beehives stolen left and right right now. And it could be increasing as the season comes up for this stuff. So, Oliver, tell us what's going on there. The pollination, mainly of almonds we're talking about here. I mean, obviously, there's all kinds of 
crops in the, the Central Valley, but almonds are the ones that are really driving this huge demand for pollination. It's a huge industry that requires a lot of bees, about 30 billion bees, in fact, come from across the US, taken to Central Valley just for this short period of time, around a month in um, January, February time, to pollinate almonds. And the kind of stresses on bees that there are in the US and around the world, we're talking about honeybees here, managed bees, mean that it's becoming harder and harder for almond growers to find bees to pollinate their crop. So that's led to an increase in the cost of a hive. It used to be about $35 a beehive a few years ago. It's now up to around $200 a hive. So it's quite a valuable business now and thieves are kind of cashing in on that because it's so lucrative to have bees and to be able to sell them on to growers. Tell us one of these stories about somebody who got their hive stolen because as you mentioned, you're talking about millions of bees. This gets into the thousands and thousands of dollars. I think somebody lost $100,000 over losing their beehives. So this man called Lloyd Conniff, he actually was one of the biggest victims so far of this type of crime. He wasn't keen on bringing his ties down to California from Montana. The lure of the almond dollars was too much for him and he, and he brought them down in 2017. He brought 488 of his 489 beehives down. So he, he only left one behind and he left them overnight in a kind of staging area. Went back the next day, it was foggy and couldn't see a single hive, not because it was foggy, but because they'd all been stolen. And this was a pretty professional operation. They'd moved in quickly overnight with forklifts, put them onto the back of trucks and taken them away in a, maybe an hour or so can take them long to do and beekeepers tend to leave their hives out in remote areas fairly open not behind gates or anything like that so if you're a determined organized thief you can take away a lot of equipment that's worth a lot of money who are these thieves then they have to be people in the know it's got to be a pretty small pool of people who know how to handle bees and transport bees but there's also reports of some of these beehives after they've been stolen just kind of being ransacked and destroyed really lloyd and and Several other beekeepers were victims of this, what looks to be the same operation and a couple of guys were arrested and are now facing trial and police allege that they swept up hundreds of beehives from various counties in California, took them to a patch of land just outside uh, Fresno and, and chopped them up so they could basically multiply bees. So you can basically um, cut a hive in half and as long as you get a queen for the second hive, you've basically turned one hive into two and therefore can then ship them on and sell them for more money. Doubling your money for each hive you manage to multiply. So, um, yeah, it's certainly a kind of sophisticated professional operation involving plenty of thefts and then a reselling operation. As I say, a couple of these people were arrested and nevertheless, there are other operators who are doing this. There are desperate beekeepers who aren't able to meet the number of hives that they've agreed to with growers. So they're short, they're under pressure from disease, under pressure from climate change, under um, pressure from pesticides, which are all harming bee uh, populations. So in order to meet the quotas they've agreed to, they sometimes feel forced into actually stealing from other beekeepers. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting dynamic, this growing demand for bee pollinators. The supply is under pressure, as you mentioned. Sometimes they lose a lot of bees to disease and whatnot. But I think beekeepers typically lose 40% of their colonies in wintertime, and they have to kind of mm. resupply that stuff. And it's just so interesting how, you know, you think of bees and honeybees specifically, you think of them for their honey, obviously, but mm. they're being more valuable as these contract workers, if you want to call them, every time the season comes around. 
I think if you look back 20, 30 years ago, the image that we would have of beekeepers would be fairly accurate. It would be somebody who would keep some bees, make some honey, sell that off to the public to put onto their um, pancakes or their toast or whatever, and that would be enough to make them a nice bit of amount of money. Now the price of honey is, is dropping quite sharply. Um, a lot of that is blamed on imports from overseas. So they have to find another source of income and the kind of modern industrialized form of farming we have now, big agriculture, demands a huge amount of pollination for monocultural crops such as almonds and blueberries and other other, other things that need pollination. So these bees now travel all around the country. They go from Florida, they can go up to Maine, they can go to New York, to Oregon and, and California to pollinate different things. It's a very different lifestyle to what most people would imagine beekeepers to have. Oliver Millman, reporter at The Guardian. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. like to talk about who we're running against. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. Joining us now is Zach Montalaro, campaign reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Zach. Thanks for having me. Finally, we had a Democratic debate that had some fire in it. Obviously, the newest addition was former Mayor Mike Bloomberg being thrown into the mix. And things got ugly there in Vegas really fast. Senator Elizabeth Warren wasted no time getting to the attacks. She started off by saying, oh, you know, we're running against this billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And she says, I'm not talking about Trump. I'm talking about Mike Bloomberg. And from there, he was hit on everything. Stop and frisk. Sexist comments that he might have made and uh, these non-disclosure agreements, his tax returns. It was like a nonstop onslaught against Mike Bloomberg. It was his first time that he was on stage, and I think that certainly showed, to put it gently, everyone took swings at him. At, you know, Elizabeth Warren most prominently, but even Joe Biden got in, took some shots at Bloomberg. Bernie Sanders saw with him, Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, everyone on stage took some chances, take a swing at him, and he really never had a solid response to any of it. The one that was most surprising to me was the NDA. You have to have known that question was coming, and fumbled his way through that, of saying he won't release these women from the NDAs, didn't particularly give good reason why. And like Warren just really went to town for it with him on that. Mike Bloomberg's response there was, quote, maybe they didn't like a joke I told. And then the other quote that he said that we did these NDAs because the NDAs were made consensually. And it's like, this is not the language that you use when you're talking about sexist comments and non-disclosure agreements. Yeah, I, I totally agree. They were just horrible answers. And you're right. Even his campaign had said that they did prep, they did do a lot of debate prep, and we're ready for these types of answers, but it didn't seem like Mike Bloomberg was ready for any of that. I think his campaign manager after that said, Mike's got to get his legs under him. He hasn't had a debate since he sought his third term for mayor in 2009, and I think it totally showed. Like they said that, you know, oh, Bloomberg got his legs under him after 45 minutes. Not entirely sure how true that is. I don't know if he looked better in the latter hour and 15 in the first 45. But the benefit, I guess, for the other five candidates on stage, they had eight debates previously to kind of work out the kinks, get all this going. And it looks like last night's debate was actually the most viewed of the cycle yet. I think I saw some numbers that put it at like 19 million people watched it on television. That's a lot of people who saw this debate and saw Mike Bloomberg kind of getting beaten up for two hours. Where does this put Mike Bloomberg now? Because he's obviously spending millions and millions of dollars 
on advertising. I think it's like 409 million from last November to January, something like that. He still has the next debate in South Carolina. That's going to be on Tuesday, February 25th. It kind of seems like this first debate, he obviously had to take all the punches. And maybe in the next one, if he stands strong, he can continue in the race. We're still a while away from anyone voting for Mike Bloomberg, that's for sure, because he's skipping out in Nevada, and he's skipping out in South Carolina. He's not on the ballot. He's not competing. His Super Tuesday is until March 3rd. Can what happened on stage really be counteracted by that massive amount of ad spending? You know, we've seen the Bloomberg campaign has spent over $400 million in totalitarian but staff and rent and all that fun stuff through from the launch of his campaign through January 31st. That is just an absolute absurd amount of money. Advertising analytics, which is a firm that tracks advertising, said that through the beginning of this week, he spent about $360 million on traditional advertising as media, as TV and radio. And that is the most any presidential campaign has ever spent, including general election campaigns. So, you know, does one bad night or two bad nights on the debate stage overwhelm the millions and millions and tens and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of advertising that voters are seeing? I guess we'll find out. This is like a pure political science experiment almost, is how much to add matter. We'll find out with Bloomberg, apparently. Elizabeth Warren had a really good night. She was attacking Bloomberg. She was attacking everybody, sometimes all at once in one of her responses. She's constantly been described as one of the best debaters there on the stage, but it doesn't always translate into the polls. She's usually trailing Bernie Sanders, who's the polling leader right now. He came out of this unscathed. There was a tax pointed at him, but it seemed like Bloomberg was the big distraction. So Bernie Sanders comes out still on top, it seems like. It's interesting, right? It's really the only one on stage who kind of understands that Bernie Sanders is probably the closest thing the race has to a trial, and it was Pete Buttigieg. Senator Warren had a great night. It was her most fiery debate yet. She was ready to fight with just about anyone. She was sharp. She was ready to go after the mayor, Bloomberg, quite a lot. But the things that come to mind is a lot of people have already voted in Nevada. The next state up, 74,000, about 75,000 people voted early there. And that's just about as many people who voted early this go around who voted in the, the entire cycle with the entire caucus in 2016. So a lot of people already cast their ballots. Super Tuesday states like California, millions of people have already gotten their ballots in the mail, could have sent them up back already. It remains to be seen how much this will move Senator Warren's spot in the polls and in the, when people actually vote, but she had a strong night. One of the other interesting dynamics they played out was Senator Amy Klobuchar and uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. They were going at it pretty hard. It didn't really seem like it might have paid off for Pete Buttigieg. I thought he kind of came off very abrasive, but you know they're fighting for the middle, for that moderate lane now that Joe Biden seems to have kind of faded off a little bit. Pete Buttigieg really kept making the case, you know, you can't be a polarizing figure like Bernie Sanders and then taking down Amy Klobuchar. I thought she held her own, but really for the both of them, it seemed like it got pretty personal. One of my colleagues wrote a story about how the two of them very obviously don't like each other. It felt like at times that they just spent the night memorizing Apple and the other person. But, you know, Buttigieg and Klobuchar both have the same challenge going forward is how do voters of color, how do non-white voters respond to them? You know, the first two states where they both performed fairly well, Iowa and New Hampshire, overwhelmingly white voters. That's not the case in Nevada, not the case in South Carolina, and certainly not the case of the Democratic electorate at large once you get a larger swath of states like Super Tuesday. How do voters of color respond to them? First thing we need to watch, and we'll see, we'll get that early test on Saturday. And how much can they really change their fortune? Because despite the fact that they did well in those first two early states, Either of them are in the top three or the top four in national polling. And national polling is not worth everything because there is no such thing as a national primary. But in the absence of polling in a lot of these Super Tuesday states, you can maybe take some clues to national polling. You know, they need to change something, starting with Nevada, starting with South Carolina, and then going into Super Tuesday to expand their support. 
Zach Montalaro, campaign reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.